the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome to Healing Habits with Dr. John Duong of the Holistic Health Center. On today's edition, we talk about some of the top six reasons why people are forced to quit work and go out on permanent disability. Well, you might guess what the top two of the six are arthritis and back pain and or lower neck pain. In fact, chronic back, neck, and leg pain accounted for more than 264 million lost work days last year alone. If you're one of those, stay tuned. We'll offer some insights on how to finally get the relief you seek. Dr. Dong, when you hear those statistics of how many people suffer from arthritis, neck pain, lower back pain, debilitating to the point where Americans lost a combined total of 264 million workdays last year alone. It's shocking. Wow, that can be solved so easily. Let's talk about some of the steps that are necessary in solving. And I guess the first step is to first and foremost ascertain what's the source of the pain. How do you go about determining that? The source of pain, of course, technology will uh, help us to identify the, the true underlying cause of it. But in reality, if you look at, like, if, if you have neck pain, um, and then you have an X-ray, and um, and then your symptoms would be like if you have a neck problem, your symptoms would be going down to your arm, tingling, numbness in your arm, or headaches. Look at your X-ray, look at your MRI. Where is the location of the problem? Usually, it's going to be C4, C5, C5, C6. How about in the lower back? It's always the pattern that we have to catch and find out the cause of the problem. How about lower back? The lower back is going to be L4, L5. L5-S1, those are the most degenerative discs, bulging discs, herniated discs, degenerative discs. That's a disc problem. Also arthritis, like the actual bone that is growing. What, is, what does it cause when you're, you have bulging discs? It's the stenosis. In the low back, it's more st- the stenosis. It's narrowing of the canal. It's called for our canal stenosis, foraminal stenosis. It's narrowing. So bottom line is that the cause of the pain is two things. is pressure on the nerve and on the bone, and then also infla- inflammation of that. So if we have ways to solve it, then we can help a lot of people. To what degree is this sort of degeneration normative as we age? And I'm thinking about effects of things like time and age and maybe sports injuries or gravity all impacting us. Some people sort of resign themselves to the notion that they're forever going to be taking pain pills to address this issue. But my impression is that that's not necessarily the right perspective. No, aging is always part of it. We can degenerate very fast or a normal process of aging so that we don't have to live in pain. So the way that a lot of people uh, degenerate faster and they have excruciating pain, press on the nerve, um, that going down to their arms or their feet is because of the increasing of the pressure. The loading pressure on the disc so that it just, it degenerates faster, okay? And then 
the way that we have to solve it is to reducing the pressure on the disc, on the bones, and reducing inflammation. So there's there's way there's techniques that we can do that. Now this kind of runs contrarian to, and most people listening that suffer from lower back pain or neck pain will bear me out on this. That traditionally the approach has been: you come in, you complain about where the particular area of pain seems to be. The doctor will prescribe you pain medication, maybe anti-inflammatories. There might be a prescription for a period of physical therapy, and then immediately they jump to things like invasive surgery, fusing the spine, things of that sort. It seems to me, though, that that's an awful quick rush to surgery, which oftentimes can create more damage than it actually occurs. That's why um, a lot of people have the surgery, and then they will have a fusion surgery later on. The reason is that you never solve the problem. Your force is still there, the loading force. I keep seeing the loading force that's creating the pressure on the disc, herniated disc, bulging disc, okay, degenerative disc. If it's on bone, it's going to be arthritis, extra bone that's growing. Okay, that's the loading force that's creating the pressure. Surgery would not solve that problem. The surgery would just cut off the nerve so it doesn't press, uh, cut off the disc or cut off the bone. It, it never solves uh, reducing the pressure. So we need to help the patient to understand how to reducing the pressure of the disc of, on the bone so it doesn't uh, cause continued degenerations uh, of the person and then also reducing the inflammations. So inflammation is a cause of a lot of pain. So we have to know ways of doing that. Some examples of inflammation is like people with diabetes, the chance there will be inflammation that will affecting their low back autoimmune conditions like psoriasis, RA, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, that's RA. Um, lupus, so that's the inflammatory process that causes inflammations that de- can degenerate um, your spine faster. So in your practice, is it frequent to discover a patient who comes in complaining of chronic lower back pain or neck pain that maybe has been diagnosed with degenerative uh, discs, and then you find out after a thorough examination that there are other things that are contributory, like you mentioned, things such as arthritis or diabetes? Now we are living in a toxic world. So, yes, that's always the case. It's not just the low back anymore. It's also the, the eating habit that's causing it, the disease that's causing it, the other disease that's causing inflammation, like I said, immune system. Now people have a hard time, like, sleeping. They're having a hard time, like, going to the bathroom. Constipations or diarrhea, the brain is inflamed. So there is multiple things that cause the inflammatory process. So we need to find ways of helping the patients to reduce inflammation, eating appropriately. So now they can fix their pain in their neck or in the back or any, in any part of the body. So you're really taking a step back then and looking at multiplicity of potential causal forces that are all contributory toward the patient's complaint, my back hurts. But there's oftentimes a lot more going on behind the scenes. And sadly, and quite frequently, doctors fail to fully diagnose this, or if they diagnose it, medicine is the only answer they have to try and cure it. You have some procedures that you've developed down through the years in a holistic approach that not only harnesses healthy lifestyle, 
healthy living, healthy eating, but modern technology to help relieve a lot of the causal forces and ultimately lead people into a pain-free lifestyle. Talk a little bit about your approach and using many of these non-invasive, non-surgical procedures to offer people a life free from pain. The only way that we can solve chronic conditions is your own body. You have to heal from within. That's how you fix the chronic pain or any chronic disease that you have is yourself, your body. How do you fix the bodies? Okay, like let's, let's get me in, in, in the example so that uh, the audience will understand. If you have um, low back pain, herniated disc, bulging disc stenosis, that, uh, that gives pressure on the nerve, it can go down into your leg or it's just had the back pain only, or I've even had patients that said, I don't have back pain anymore, I just have a leg pain. Or numbness, numbness in the hands. Mm-hmm. In the hands or in the feet, okay? So there's this issue. So now what we need to do is that we need to find out where, what's the reason, what's the reasoning behind it. So you need to take a little history, understand is there a loading force that's causing the degenerative, the bulging disc, the stenosis on the neck and on the lower back. The neck is what, C4, C5, C5, C6? Low back L4, L5, L5, S1. Okay, so the, those are the area that we're looking at. There's a loading force on it. The X-ray, the MRI will always confirm that for us. So we know the area of the loading force that's causing the issue. Second, that we need to understand the person. There's a way that you need to find out is that are you going to the bathroom frequently? You, that's the way that you detox, right? You have to look, help the patient to understand they're sleeping. And you have to understand the oxygens. Oxygen makes the body more alkaline. That's chemistry right there. What do you do frequently to reduce uh, the loading force? Do you have a healing habits? It's the habits that you need to create to reduce that pressure. So I developed a two pumps exercise that I ask my patients, whenever you feel the loading on your back or on your neck, what you need to do is that you need to do this exercise to reduce the pressure immediately so it doesn't build up. The pressure do build up. That's why it degenerate. Why do you degenerate the low back? It's not just one time. It's throughout the years that you cause the herniated disc, bulging disc, arthritis on the, on the back. So you have to have a healing habits of that. And, and then, when a patient comes in then for your consultation and for a thorough examination, you're, it's really a multi-point then exam. You're looking at not what's only going on within the arena of pain, be it the lower back or the neck, but then counting every other potential contributory factor. Yes, of course. Anything can contribute. The emotion can, can contribute in your muscles being tight. So it's the, uh, it's the multiple approach, how to help the body to heal from within. So understanding the body understanding where's the weakness, and then supporting the body so the body can heal. We talked about technology. Technology is just wonderful. Like we have the five-point therapy. We have the latest technologies in terms of reducing the pressure on the lower back, allowing the disc to heal, having the white nutrients into the disc and heal, reducing the pressure. Um, and then there's also the like lasers, uh, cold lasers um, technology that's helped the patient's to heal better, but it's the right approach, it's the timing aspect of it, the experience, and then also working with the patients, guiding the patient so that they can feel good. The key words I would say to the patient is that the therapy that we do, you have to feel good. The exercise, the habits that you create, you have to feel good. When you feel good, 
Your body's be more relaxed. When your body's relaxed, that's how your body heals. Can you estimate for us, doctor, how many patients that come in complaining of chronic back pain, lower neck pain, arthritis, who have been on medication perhaps for years to try and mitigate some of the pain, go through your procedures, begin to implement these daily healing habits that you've spoken of, and then are able to eventually become not only pain-free, but painkiller-free? Any idea what the percentage looks like? My patients, when they do exactly what they said, their success rate is just tremendous. And I prefer not to give it numbers because I'm not God. I don't do the healing with the patient. When the patient is doing their work, my coaching, their success rate is tremendous because I believe the body can heal itself. And the patients, when they follow through the process, their success rate is going to be very high because their body can heal from within. There is such a high percentage of people today that are frustrated with living with chronic debilitating pain every single day that not only perhaps impacts your ability to, to live, to enjoy life, to even engage in performing daily tasks. If this describes you and you're at wit's end, there's a very special offer that Dr. Duong is offering at this moment through the Holistic Health Center. If you call today... Dr. Duong is offering a $47 consultation for the first eight callers who qualify, and all you need to do is call 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. And Dr. Duong, I understand that this complete examination and consultation that you're offering for only $47 is typically a $287 value. Yes. I want to see if I can help you. And you, you have been living in pain for a long period of time, so now is the time to find out, is there a solution to solve your chronic pain? And the good news is you don't have to live with pain anymore. To get more information, again, the telephone number to call is 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. For a limited time, Dr. Duong is offering a $47 consultation for the first eight callers who qualify. So call today the Holistic Health Center at 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668. Also, lots of wonderful resources and teaching videos available online at Dr. DuongLive.com. That's DrDuongLive.com. Doctor, we appreciate you coming in today, and we hope for all of our listeners that more and more they'll begin to develop healing habits. Thank you, Craig. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Today, a bit of a disclaimer in that if you have young ears near the radio, it might be a good time to busy them elsewhere around the house as uh, we get an opportunity to kind of talk parent to parent, dealing with a topic that, um, quite frankly, you do need to be talking to your children about, and this is the topic about talking about the topic. If I thoroughly confused you now, good. When we were kids, not that many years ago, I constantly remind myself, uh, we learned about the birds and the bees from a variety of sources. Usually they were peers who had either heard about it from older brothers and sisters or maybe had stumbled upon uh, dad's magazine collection, something of that sort. And so we, we kind of came up through the process of learning about um, sexuality through 
outside sources, and then eventually mom and dad came along and sat down and had the talk. I remember when my dad had the talk, and I'm not sure who was more nervous about it, he or I. Well, that sense of nervousness hasn't changed much, but I'll tell you what has changed. The sense that parents have in terms of what the talk should consist of, what the kids do and do not already know about sexuality, and in third and perhaps most importantly, how early that conversation needs to take place. Um, we would think in this day and an age with the over-sexualization of our society that this would be an easier conversation to have. But for many parents, it's become increasingly more difficult. So at what point can we begin a meaningful and age-appropriate conversation about such subjects as sexuality, pornography, and even more serious sexual abuse? Well, my guest today has some insights on that very topic. In fact, she is the author of a new book called Five Things Every Parent Needs to Know About Their Kids and Sex. And Marie Miller, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of those discussions that every parent knows that they should have or need to have with their son and daughter, and yet uh, I think all have the tendency to want to put it off. And, and as you suggest in the book, almost every parent today has a number of really severe misconceptions about what their child knows, when they learned it, and what the source was. So maybe we can start with kind of uh, before we, we encourage parents on how to educate their own children on the topic of sexuality, perhaps some parents need to be educated to begin with. Sure. Um, what kind of brought this topic to mind so much that I felt like it was kind of my message to share with the world was um, my own story. I grew up a preacher's kid in a, a very conservative Southern environment and was never talked to about sex. And through that was um, abused by a youth pastor, unfortunately, and exposed to pornography in my teens. And this was years and years and years ago. Um, and God has healed me in tremendous ways. And so I started sharing my story to high school students, college students, and then even more recently, middle school students. And what came out of years of sharing my story was learning that children as young as 10, nine years old, um, are, are being abused, are exposed to pornography, and they're terrified to talk to their parents about it. They're, they feel so much shame. And so once I, I kind of saw that this is a, a very common pattern, I started doing some research into what our kids are exposed to and when and why it's so important to talk to them a lot sooner than we think is is realistic. One of the big um, issues that you take umbrage with early on and throughout the book, and maybe it's a good jumping off point for our discussion today, and that is this notion that every parent has that my child is the exception. Um, this idea that, well, uh, my son or daughter, they were raised in a good Christian home or a good Christian school or they have good Christian parents or a good Christian upbringing, and therefore we don't need to worry about such matters. I'm not going to be concerned about them sexualizing early or, or getting in trouble, because after all, we've done all the right things. What, what is wrong about this misconception that many parents have, that it's not going to be their kid, that their kid is the sole exception? Sure. No, I think there's kind of a, a two-part answer to that. The first being, it's not about sheltering. Like, we can shelter our children as much as possible. We can hide them in the basement away from technology, not give them smartphones or iPads or anything like that. Um, but sheltering is not the answer. It's having a conversation is because 
at some point your child is going to be an adult and will need to know how to process sexualized information that they received from the world. And on the other hand of this, I was the exception. Um, Like I said before, I was a preacher's kid. I grew up in a very small town that was very conservative with good values and great parents and great home life and a small school. And, and I mean, this was before the internet, so I wasn't even exposed to what's on the internet now um, at that young of an age. But yet, unfortunately, as I said, life still happened and, and I was still abused by somebody and through that abuse was exposed to pornography and was terrified to talk to my parents about it. So now with the internet and apps and social media, even though you may be doing everything you can to to shelter or protect your child, and, and that's very valuable, your child probably has a friend who has access to the internet or will hear something on the radio or hear something even at church, um, just that another child says that they need to be prepared to know how to respond to. So we can't protect our, our children from everything all the time. It's really about teaching them how to process that. And, and, you know, the irony, Anne-Marie, is it's not that many years ago, not that many generations ago, when the whole issue of a child being introduced to such matters was a question of uh, when it was going to happen and uh, under what circumstances the parent would introduce the topic. Today, as you suggest, with peer pressure, media, entertainment, social media at all, uh, it almost sounds like this is sort of a grace against time, meaning that they'll be exposed to it. The question is, who gets to them first and what kind of a message are they exposed to? Is it the healthy, biblically-based viewpoint on sexuality and reproduction and uh, this creation of God? Or is it the distorted view that is one that, quite frankly, for a lot of kids, I think, can... um, can lead them to believe that this is just simply uh, a a dirty subject. Right. There's um, so much in the world today that is changing. What values were right 20 years ago are wrong now, and and vice versa. And by teaching our children that the Scripture is the truth and Scripture doesn't change and giving them that perspective early on is so key to forming their their sexual development and, and how they interpret sexual messages from the world um, because they're there. They're, they're going to receive them, and the parents should be on the front lines of, of communicating that and being a, a valuable and trustworthy place for their kids to come to to talk about sex. And marie Miller, our guest today, a look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. We'll deal with the big question of what about this matter of exposure to online porn and how early can it potentially begin? We'll address that question and more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, a visit with Anne-Marie Miller, a look at five things every parent needs to know about kids and sex. Uh, of course, the big issue, I think, that many parents have always struggled with, Marie, is, okay, when do we start the conversation? What's an appropriate age? Do we wait till uh, 17, 15 when they start dating? As you're suggesting, more and more these children are getting exposed to things through social media, through peers, and online at an earlier and earlier age. Any statistics out there to give us an idea as to just 
how young, potentially, they're being exposed to this online? Well, what's interesting about that statistic is that every time it's refreshed, I think I I started researching the book about three years ago, and the average age of exposure to online pornography was around 11 to 12 years old at that time for most studies. And toward the end of uh, when I was finishing the book and it was going through the editing process and review process, that number actually dropped to eight years old. Wow. So within three years, it dropped three years of, of age for children that are being exposed. And it's not like our children are going out there necessarily and looking up pornography intentionally, which sometimes is true. Maybe they hear a word that they don't know and they look it up. Um, but what's happening is that people that market pornography are, are really targeting younger and younger audiences by misspelling common names, like maybe if you type in Disney or the White House or something very common and innocent into the into a search engine and you spell it wrong or they've just created a strategy to expose your child to pornography earlier because we see in the long term that that actually ends up making money for uh, different marketers of pornography. I so, learned this the hard way many years ago. There was some issue going on in the political arena that I believe our listeners needed to get out in front of. And so I urge listeners to um, go to the uh, White House website and please send an email to the president voicing their opinion. And I gave out the, uh, w- without thinking, gave out the White House address. I won't tell you what the dot aspect of it was, but it wasn't GOV. Just out mm-hmm. of habit. Right. And I got a right. couple of calls from listeners the next day that were shocked and said, have you seen what's happened to the White House website? I said, well, no, what are you talking about? And so we logged on, and then we were shocked, too. So the irony is uh, 30, 40 years ago, you had to go looking for it. You had to go into the seedy part of town and the, the end that nobody ever went to where all the little seedy bars were located, and that's where you had to go to find uh, the stores that cater to people that purchase that stuff. Today, literally, as you're suggesting, Anne-Marie, it comes and finds you, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, we basically have pornography stores that we carry around in our in our pockets and our purses when we carry our cell phones. The, the potential to be exposed to something unintentionally is so huge for ourselves and our children um, that we just really need to be aware of that. And that's why I encourage parents start this conversation, not just one talk. People always refer to it as the talk, but I think it's a series of conversations over many, many years as your child gets older. All right, let's talk about some of the the ground rules, if we can, here. As you point out in the book, this goes beyond simply that babies don't come out of cabbage uh, patches and things of this sort. We, we, We understand some of that. A lot of this also gets to the idea of helping to, to a certain degree, not only inoculate your child against the potentiality of some developing, uh, someday developing a, an addiction to pornography, but more and more, we're also having to teach them earlier and earlier so that they can be better protected if they ever find themselves in a circumstance where it could be anything from um, a sexual abuse at the hands of a uh, a trusted relative, or for that matter, even sex trafficking. I mean, it, it's amazing the kind of horrible things that our children at such a young age, and for many parents, think of, you know, that kind of period of innocence, gleeful innocence for many of us, 
uh, just a couple of generations ago where you would never think about talking to your child about such matters when they were eight or nine years old. And, and today, as you're suggesting, if you haven't had that conversation, at least by the time they're 10, it, it's likely too late. It's likely they've gotten all the details and gotten a lot of wrong details from some other source. Yes, there's probably some sort of, of recovery um, that you're going to have to do with them and, and kind of reteaching and refocusing what uh, what family values you need to communicate to them. But, I mean, as early as, you know, your your bond with your child starts in infancy. So just by, by being there for your child and, and naming body parts in the correct way um, as early as, as toddler age um, is, is really important. And so that way, when they get to be in elementary school, when they're really the most vulnerable, because a lot of predators don't think that children know what's a good touch or a bad touch they're, if they haven't been told, because a lot of parents don't tell their children. Um, but by telling your children, you know, if, if mom or dad or whoever is the trustworthy guardian, you know, can, can give you a bath and that's okay, or if your doctor is looking at you and we're in the room, that's okay. But if a stranger or a friend or a teacher touches you somewhere and, and pointing out where those places are, um, that there's no secrets. Even if they tell you to keep it a secret, there's no secrets and you need to tell me. And, and just letting them know what, what is appropriate and what is not when it comes to who can touch them and, and where is okay for them to, to be touched. What about the parent that is dealing with their own either bad or, or painful past, either because maybe they've struggled with pornography addiction themselves or have been the victims of abuse. And so for them, it's a painful topic. They're afraid to even broach it and, and, and bring it up because they're not quite sure to how to go about addressing this as it brings up issues of their own. I, I would imagine that even though that might be problematic for a parent, that should be no excuse to avoid the topic. Am I right? I'm so glad that you brought that up because you're absolutely right. Parents, I mean, statistically, half of the people listening to your broadcast right now are struggling with some sort of, of sexual sin or, or an addiction, or maybe they were abused. Um, someone out there is struggling. And when we're in that situation, we think that we cannot be leaders for our children and our families. But I want to just really encourage those people that that God has equipped you and, and He has put you over your family to lead your family. They, if not mutually exclusive, you, you must lead your family and, and teach your children. And yes, you've, you probably have some stuff to deal with on your own too, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean that you can't teach your children. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It, it doesn't make you ill-equipped um, because God has given you that role. So you are so vital in, in helping your child form their view on sexuality. And perhaps, you know, the, the lesson that you do not want to see your son or daughter either repeat the mistakes that you made or go through the painful experience that you've gone through uh, having been a victim of abuse, that, that this is really an opportunity to help prepare them to, to in, as best you can, as any parent would want to, I think, uh, in their heart, want to do all they can to protect their child. Sure. I think, I mean, we are inherently wired as parents to want to do the best for our children and, and to protect them and to guard them from anything that can harm them. And I know just within my own life, and my husband and I are expecting in July, and just the love and protection I, I have already for this child. Um, and, and we're planning now, like, when will we have these conversations, and how will we talk about our past with them? And 
you don't need to reveal everything about your past to your child. I mean, it's, it's definitely not necessarily even appropriate to do that. But using the experiences in your life that have been harmful to help protect your child is a beautiful way that God can redeem that part of your story. But see, you can cheat here because uh, wait a couple of years once your son or daughter is, uh, well, probably more than a couple of years, but when they're ready to, ready to read, just say, here, mommy wrote this book with you in mind. <laughs> read it and call me if you have any questions. <laughs> yep, I've already started reading to to our child um, while while it's growing inside me. So hopefully, it's picking up on a few things early on. But now, as much as I, I mentioned that mentioned that tongue in cheek, stay with us for a minute, if you would, uh, Anne Marie, because I want to come to another another topic, and then we're going to ask Anne Marie to kind of walk us through a quick tutorial on the five things that every parent needs to know about kids and sex. And one of the questions we'll pose is for parents that feel uncomfortable at this topic, ill-equipped to address questions, or feel like you were born in an, you know, a light year away that you're so out of touch with what the kids are facing that maybe you think, hmm, gee, if I could just give my son or daughter a book, like a copy of Anne Marie's book, or, or how about this? Just suggest they Google it. Anything wrong with that? We'll find out as our conversation with Anne Marie Miller continues. Look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. And Marie Miller, our guest tonight, as we're talking about this topic, and more and more parents are coming to the painful realization that it's not a question of um, necessarily when your children get exposed. That's simply happening earlier and earlier. It's a question of who gets to them first. Do you get to them with the right information, the right answers in a uh, God-centered, biblically-based fashion, or do you wait for them to learn about it from social media, their peers, or the internet? We're talking about that very topic. And and one of the things, um, before we get to have you walk through these five things, um, that every parent needs to know, Anne-Marie, is this idea of some parents that feel as if, well, I, I feel a little bit awkward about this, so I'm just going to suggest to my son or daughter that they Google it to get more information. Uh, is that bad advice? That is really bad advice. Uh, please do not do that. Um, that's actually one of the five points that we'll get to um, as far as the five things that parents need to know is we live in a generation where when we don't know the answer to something, we just Google it. We just look it up on the Internet. And when it comes to issues of sexuality, when you do that, and especially with younger generations, they don't want to sit and read an article. They're going to Google image search that. So um, they're going to get exposed to images that are just inappropriate for them to see. All right, let's let's walk through these five things, and you, you detail them in the book and realize, of course, for listeners that uh, this is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, this is meant to kind of hit the highlights for you and then encourage you to get a copy of Anne-Marie Miller's new book. By the way, the book is newly published by Baker and available at Christian bookstores around the Bay Area, as well as the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And Anne-Marie, it's also available on your website? Yes, it sure is. All right, so folks can go to annemariemiller.com and order the copy of the book there as well. All right, let's break it down. Walk us through, if you would, the five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Uh, The first one is the earlier the better. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier in the show, but talking to your kids about sex from literally birth 
through 18 and over. Um, we kind of cover what age-appropriate conversations are for different age groups. So if you have a 4-year-old or a 12-year-old, um, you can kind of know what they're experiencing and what you should probably be talking to them about. Um, the second one is that your child is not the exception. And again, that's something that we we really battle, uh, especially within the Christian community, is we think we're doing everything we can to protect our child, and we are, but that's not the answer. Just having that conversation so that when they are exposed to these things, they can know how to process it in a biblical manner is, is definitely key. Uh, the third thing is just about media. Um, any type of media, TV, movies, radio, music, video games, the whole gamut. I kind of just uh, did a lot of research about what's on these different forms of media and how children are exposed to them and, and the, the risk and benefits. And it, it was really shocking to me, um, to be quite honest, to, to watch a show that's rated for 14-year-olds and be exposed to 40 or 50 sexual references in just a few minutes. I, I was so. shocked the, the other day. I, I happened to catch a repeat of one of the movies in the Shrek series. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 it, it hit me at so much a surprise. I, I, I didn't even, at first I thought, oh, I'm clearly misunderstanding this, until I realized that, that one of the characters written into, I think it's Shrek 3, is is intentionally created as a transsexual, and I thought, yeah. oh well, we're just keeping up with the uh, uh, with the Bruce and Caitlyn Jenner times, I suppose. Yeah, even in I mean, <laughs> Shrek is cute, but even like in the original Shrek, uh, the magic mirror talks to Snow White and says, "Just because she lives with seven men doesn't mean that she's easy." I mean, that says he, that mirror says that in the first track. You know, the irony um, is that we realize that there are adults who write the scripts, who to do the artwork, so they're going to occasionally put content in that seems to get the guffaws out of the adults in in the audience. But of course, they fail to recognize that the the biggest group of consumers of that content are going to be children. And make no mistake about it, there's got to be some degree to which part of this kind of the, you know, the the behind the scenes inside, ha, 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 let's pull one over kind of a deal. And part of it has got to be some intentional effort. I mean, I, I, I looked at this one character in Shrek 3 and I thought, they're intentionally trying to prepare kids for that early age uh, in in introducing them to the topic of of uh, transsexualism, which you know, given the the debate going on in this country today regarding mm-hmm. children and the use of bathrooms and and whatnot, and a bill that even here in California has been uh, facing a court challenge that pushes the very same topic. You, you would you would think that these films that are geared for children would be safe for children, but that isn't always the case. And I I suppose to a great degree, parents find themselves in the very unenviable position of having to explain things that they never thought they would be discussing with a seven-year-old. You're absolutely right. It's it's really amazing, and, and sadly, it's become kind of the new norm. Um, because we have a, a set of values that's very different from what the world puts in the media. You know, we're shocked and we're, we're horrified to hear these things or to see these things. But it's just another day at the office for a lot of people, and they don't give a second thought about it. Okay, so from the media, point number four. Um, so we move from media into that whole Google is the new sex ed idea that we are a generation. We are a, a world almost where... When we don't know something, we go to the internet. If you 
as an adult if you need to know how thorough your meat needs to be cooked when when you're making a steak or a hamburger you google it or if you want to know who sings a certain song you google it and it's the same way when our kids hear a, a word in school or that their peers say they think that it might be a bad word they will turn to the internet because they don't want to turn to your parent because they're embarrassed or their friends so they go to the internet put the word in and then that's how a lot of children are exposed to pornography for the first time and amazingly of course uh, you know again talk about feeling your 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 eons light years away where for my generation if you had questions you either looked it up in your Encyclopedia Britannica or in the reference department of the local library, where even if there were any of those books that might be questionable, they were they were under lock and key. And when you walked up to the to the reference librarian's desk, and clearly you were you know seven years old or ten years old, you didn't get access to that stuff. There's nobody there with any of this under lock and key, is there? I mean, even if a parent says, "Oh, we put certain filters on and we're trying to do our best," the reality is, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Anne-Marie, it isn't even as much a question of your child going and looking for it, even if they are. The reality is this stuff is coming and looking for your child, isn't it? It's very true that 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 is very often the case. Okay, and point number five. Um, The point number five is that sexually abused children rarely speak up. Mm. And that was something that, um, unfortunately, I know it makes every heart and every, every parent quiver just a little bit to think that um, their their child could be sexually abused and and not know about it. My my own parents didn't know about my abuse until I was 28, and that was 12 years after it happened. And there's so much shame and stigma tied with sexual abuse that we really um, victims of abuse tend to keep quiet. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done by parents, and and one of the one of the issues here. And you, you led with it, the, the matter of um, the age at which you start to address these matters with your child. And I know that it's going to cause a sense of embarrassment or chagrin for a lot of parents to think, I, I can't really be can, it's really talking to an eight-year-old about such things. And, you know, I think when a lot of us were, were kids of that age back uh, in the last century, uh, you know, our, if, if our parents brought such matters up, they gave cutesy names to body parts, and so we all we all kind of chuckled over it. But the idea of of addressing your child to protect your child from such abuse or from such exposure, uh, as as counterintuitive as it seems to be, we want to think we want to protect our child by inoculating them or or isolating them from exposure to all of this. But again, I guess the the big warning, if there is any from your book, is the big takeaway, Anne Marie, the idea that they're going to get it. The question is, what source are they going to get it from, and how is it going to be couched or presented? Yes, that's that's absolutely right. And I think, again, that parents have got to be on the front line of this. And oftentimes in, in books past, you know, people recommend getting in the car and driving with your child somewhere to have these conversations so that there's no escape. And I think that actually kind of plays into the message that there's something to be ashamed of. But it's really, I think, our, our opportunity as parents to to sit down with our child and look them in the eye and, and talk about these things and Yes, it, it's going to be a little awkward, but to embrace that and know that sex is not a dirty topic that we need to sweep under the rug. And, you know, it's this beautiful gift that God's given us to share between a, a man and his wife in, in marriage. And outside of that, the world's distorted it. But just to normalize that conversation so that your 
kids can feel safe to talk to you about questions and they don't feel awkward when you when you bring stuff up. Um, that, that's just really key. That conversation is really key. And, and certainly, as I think you suggest, creating a safe environment, a healthy environment in which these conversations can take place, in which children feel comfortable approaching mom and dad, too, with questions, is going to go a long way toward making sure that it doesn't take place eventually later on out of and beyond your control in very unsafe environments that can be every, every gambit from teaching uh, values that are con- contrary to the the Christian ethic, the biblical uh, uh, standard that you want to create in your home and for your child, and 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 to the 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 sad and horrific continuum of sexual abuse if your child isn't prepared to know what it is and what to look out for. A look at five things every parent needs to know about their kids and sex. Again, newly published by Baker Books, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Anne Marie Miller's website at annemariemiller.com. It's annemariemiller.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.